0: Well, this morning, in starting out with you, what I want to do is start out with one of Aesop's fables. You've all heard of Aesop, right? If you hadn't, you need to, we're going to take your high school diploma back. Uh, this is part of 101 in our education. Aesop had, a, Aesop had a great story about a miser. Turns out this miser went and he had this pack of gold, and he took it in his garden, and he would bury it deep within his garden. Every single day, he would go to the garden, and he would dig it up, and he would look at it and sometimes put more in, but he would just be fascinated with it and then he would cover it up. Until one day, a stranger going along just happened to be looking and he saw what this man was doing and the stranger was a thief. So in the night, the thief came in, dug up the hole and stole all the man's gold, all of his belongings. And of course, the next day he goes out and finds this empty hole and he just starts bemoaning the situation. Oh my gold, my gold, who would take my gold? And a passerby is walking alongside and he goes, wow, somebody stole your gold? He goes, yes, yes they did. And he said, well, why didn't you keep it in the bank? Or even keep it in your house such that you had an easy access to it and you could turn around you could spend it on other things. To which the miser said, spend it. I would never spend my gold. It's there for me to look at and to enjoy in that way. And as a result, the stranger bent over and he picked up a stone and he dropped it right there in the hole. And he says, if that's the case, then go ahead and cover up that stone because it's worth about as much as the treasure that you lost. And Esau's or Aesop's, uh, point behind it is a possession is of no more worth to you than the use that you make of it. Well, what's true of gold in the ground, I could say is also true of the spiritual treasures that you and I possess. If you have your Bibles... Take them out, would you? And turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going into Ephesians chapter 1. And it's here we're going to see a prayer for a local church and how Paul prays that these people will ultimately embrace the immense treasure that they have. So this, in fact, this entire month, we're going to be looking at a series of prayers that Paul gives throughout the New Testament. And so we're starting out the new year with a view to aligning and experiencing God in new ways through the gift that we have of experiencing him through our prayers and communications with him. So my prayer is that you don't just learn more about prayer. My prayer is that we all get transformed. And if you don't learn anything uh, from it, that's okay, I'm learning tons. So maybe that blessing will spill over to you. But what I hope that we'll also see is prayer is a whole lot more than just a glorified Santa's list. where we come to God and we ask him to give us our comforts, give us our safety, and give us our security. That instead, as we go before him, we begin to experience him in a whole new and different way. It was Pastor Michael Easley who said, Don't pray for a miracle, pray for an immovable faith. And when I read and when I heard that, I thought, okay, now that's prayer at an entirely different level. This is going to uh, take everything up a notch. And um, I think most of us aren't used to prayers like that. Paul's prayers are going to take us to an entirely different level. Now, Ephesians 1, before we look at the prayer within it, every text has a context. And you don't fully understand the prayer until you understand the context. So before we look at verses 15 through 23, which we're going to in just a moment, we got to see it in light of the truths that come to us from verses three through 14. So it's to the people of the church of Ephesus. If you don't know where Ephesus is, well, it's in the Western side of the what is now modern day Turkey. And there was a church that Paul ministered to, invested a couple of years of his life into. You can read more about that on your own out of Acts chapter 19. But uh, in his ministry, when he first shows up, he encounters these guys. They're disciples of John the Baptist. And when he gets to talking with them, he finds out they really haven't learned about the baptism that they can receive in Christ in the new life. And so he teaches them, speaks to them. They receive that, and he baptizes them right there to let them know that the Messiah that they had longed for had come. And this guy was diligent then to go out, and he began, as he always did, with the synagogues, because the gospel was to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But he was going to both. And as a result, so many people were hearing that you could almost divide a lot of the people in the region with those that either heard and believed the gospel or were hardened to the gospel. His impact was profound. And then on top of his teaching, as he went out, he began to perform various miracles. And God was doing miracles through him. And so Paul saw these people changing from being idolaters, men and women who worship these idols to put those aside to begin to worship the one true God. However, instead of the AFL-CIO, you had the EFL-CIO, the Ephesian Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organization, took great issue with Paul because of this. Because the Silversmith Union was taking a big financial hit, and they saw their business being hurt, as long as people quit worshiping these silver idols to turn instead to the one true God. By the way, note that often the source of a spiritual persecution, when you trace it down to its root, it's going to be financial impact. What is happening to our finances? And uh, I personally don't think the silversmiths were all that worried about the religion. They were very worried about their pocketbooks. Well, Paul threatened their business. So as a result, they, along with a series of others, started a massive riot. And they all gathered together in this uh, um, stadium, the stadium of which is still there. Now, you can see by the image that I have behind me here, someone sort of depicted what the background of the stadium might have looked like, but everything else is still there and still intact. And if you can imagine thousands and thousands of people in there getting all riled up because their idol of, uh, um, who was it? Artemis of the Ephesians, because Artemis. Was being threatened and yet for two hours they all gathered in this place and they began shouting great is Artemis of the Ephesians well after a while God used a little clerk to intervene and come in here and bring this whole thing down settle everybody and they went off and in the wake of this God looked at Paul and says now it's time for you to move you're gonna leave here I'm calling you to go to Macedonia and he did but when he did a little church had been left behind So years later, when Paul is under house arrest in Rome, he decides to write this letter, the book of Ephesians, to build up this church. And Ephesians is ultimately a book that is really about the church, about God's plan and his direction for them. When you look at it, you break it into two parts. You got the first three chapters are all about truth. It's about God's work of reconciliation in Christ. This is what God has done. It isn't until you get to chapter 4 that things start to shift, and you begin looking at, uh, so what? Now that we know these truths of one, chapters 1, 2, and 3, how do we live them out? And that's chapters 4, 5, and 6, living in response to God's work. So if you're speaking about the church, stop and think about it. What do you think is important? Some of the things might be, well, who's in charge of it? Who's leading it? Uh, another one, what is it that we're going to be unified around regarding this church? And Paul does not want people to see the church merely as another type of a 501c3 institution. There's a lot more to it. This is a living organism. It is a body, as we'll learn. One of my professors in seminary, his name is Dr. Tom Constable, and he made this comment about Ephesians, that it reveals that the church is part of God's eternal plan, and it grows as a result of God's power, working through believers' lives as they overcome their spiritual enemies. And I could summarize, really, the intent behind this book in chapter 4, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul makes the call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, if you want to encourage a church in how to walk rightly, where do you begin? Paul is going to start by asserting the great blessings that the people had received the moment they became believers. What has God done to them? What did God give to them when he saved them? And that is the context of verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. And, by the way, it's an incredible list. If you've never read it, you need to. Um, When you look at it, what you find is this immense spiritual wealth that God has given to people. And I'm just going to run through a few of the items. When you get to verse 4, you find that these people had been chosen by God. You ever played sports and... uh, a couple of people divide up, and they're going to be the team captains. And they sit down, and they start picking who's going to be on the team. And you ever been that guy that was the last one? I mean, I never have, right? Neither, <laughs> And neither of you. No, we've all been there. And what did that communicate to you when you were one of the last ones picked? We don't really see your worth, your value in this. We're taking you because we have to. But on the other hand, if you were playing something, and you were one of the first ones picked, it communicated the exact opposite to you. There is an incredible worth that we see in you that you bring to our team. So as a result of this, Paul is reminding these people, let me tell you something. You were handpicked by God before time began. He's seen you all the way back before your history, before you even existed, before you had a chance to try to establish some type of worth. God had already chosen you. And in fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 5 that each person there that was a part of the churchman predestined, which means a destiny has been established pre, before, a beforehand chosen destiny to be what is verse 5 says, adopted by God. Adoption. People don't fall into adoption when they're, cho- when they're choosing a child, do they? It's a very deliberate choice. You pray about it, you think about it, you have to save up money for it. You really take this this decision that you're making very seriously because you know, I'm gonna be the one now to care for this individual and to bless him or her and provide and love this person. And a lot of you in this church have done this. You have chosen to adopt someone and bring them into your family. And you know the level of care and concern And what goes into the choice of that one? Paul reminds these people, that's how God has been with you. And the Ephesians are being reminded as a church that because they've been adopted by God, that it's an act of God's grace his doing. And as a result, they've been redeemed by God as well. Redeemed. What do we mean when we say redeemed? I'll date myself a little bit here. When I was a little kid. When my mom would go to the grocery store, a lot of times she would get these little SNH green stamps and she would bring those things home and there was a little booklet that we had. And my job was take the stamps and glue them in the booklet. And so when you had enough stamps in the booklet, you could then go to the stamp store and you, you could redeem them. You could use them like cash to then purchase something out of the store. Well, The Ephesian church is being reminded, you hadn't been redeemed by stamps. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ that's what has gone in to the purchase of you to bring you from sin and to bring you into the family of God. Verse 7 says that there are people who've been forgiven. God has lavished his grace upon them. Grace being of course that receiving that which you did not deserve. This is what they've gotten. And verses 8 and 9 says that they've received wisdom and insight, that they've been made known the mystery of the will of God. God says, I have an eternal plan, and he's pulling back the curtain so that they could look into it and they could see it and understand it, to see what it is God is trying to accomplish and will accomplish. And finally, he goes on to say that the Ephesians had obtained an inheritance. And the word used here means literally obtained by lot. We are Christ's inheritance and he is ours. And because they believe the message given, Paul goes on to say, and as a result, you've been sealed up with the Spirit as believers. Now, while I'm on this stamp kick, let me transition to a different kind of a stamp. When you have a letter and you want to mail it somewhere, you have to go to the post office and you buy a roll of stamps. And then you take one of those stamps and you put it on the letter, it's your seal. And when the post office receives that, they said, okay, because of this seal, we are going to ensure that this letter gets to its destination. It will arrive just as you have intended it to. And God says, that's what I've done with you in the Holy Spirit. He's on you. He is in you. You are sealed with him. You will get to your destination. Not even you can undo this. He he will see it through. So you see what Paul's done. He he's basically pulled out their pocketbook and showed them how much money is in it to show them all their wealth. This is a spiritual Fort Knox that they have walked up to. The, the, the door has been opened. They've seen everything. And Paul says, it's all yours. This is what God has done. Incredible wealth beyond your capacity to grasp. Now, we just got out of Christmas, so I'm sure many, if not most of you got finished watching It's a Wonderful Life. And you remember how sort of at the beginning... When there is a run that is made on the bank and there's George he's getting ready to go on his honeymoon he's got all this cash in hand and he comes up but in order to find the run of the bank he knows we don't have enough cash to pay everybody out because banks don't work that way they're tied up in investments and these people are coming they're wanting all their money to play it safe so you remember what he does he goes now 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 wait just a minute wait just a minute and so he begins taking his money and says, Now, now how much do you need? Well, I want all of it. Oh, come on, Mary, you know, help me out here. And he begins to parse out a little bit. But he's talking them out of taking all of their funds. God will never pull a Jimmy Stewart on you. When you come to him, he's not going to say, Now, now wait just a minute. Now wait, can we hold off on this? He says, It's all here. The bank is yours and you can withdraw however much you need to on any given at any given moment it's all for you when you pray this is the mentality that Paul is getting ready to prepare us for to come to God and to ask to seek and to approach him in like manner and so if you are if you are in Christ if you have received Christ Jesus as your lord folks this wealth is not just for the Ephesians. This is yours. This is all of yours. His bank of treasures ready to be cashed in and believed on. And now we get to the prayer that Paul utters beginning in verse 15. Now, if Paul had been in one of your prayer groups, I got bad news for you. You never would get a chance to speak because when you get to verses 15 or 23, it's one long sentence. He doesn't even take a breath. You wouldn't even get a chance to speak up. But it's a prayer that is powerful. And in our languages, we have chosen to break it up and put periods and so forth, but not in the original. But it's the treasured truths that he's just explained that guide him in this prayer and his request for the church in Ephesus. So with your Bibles, to chapter 1, verse 15. We haven't done this in a while. I'm going to ask you, if you would, out of respect for the Word of God, to stand with me as I read the next few verses. Verse 15, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sealed him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our Father and our God, our prayer is that we hold on to what we see and what we learn in this prayer. Let it be ours as well and let it have its impact on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, it wasn't that long ago, I was uh, talking with a gentleman who does not attend our church here, and he made a comment to me. He says, you know, you need to know something. Blue Ridge has been heard about in other areas. And I said, oh, I hope that's a good thing. (laughs) He said, it's a great thing. Your reputation precedes you. There's a good word on you out in the community. When Paul writes to these people, he says the same thing. I've heard about your reputation. And let me tell you what your reputation is all about. What are you known for? You see it in verse 15. First of all, you're a people of faith, a people that are holding and trusting in God through Jesus. And the faith is now beginning to show itself in their love that they have for one another. Two of the best trademarks for the health of any church. Are they trusting in the Lord and do they love one another? And they have the treasures of verses three through 14, and they know it. Faith and love is the evidence of it. And the power of the spirit, that enables them to have this. That's a big deal. That is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure many of y'all remember the old how that little did he go about Superman, uh, faster than a speeding locomotive, able to stop a bullet. I forget how that one goes. Um, can leap tall buildings in a single bound. Now that one always perplexed me. And you know why? Because I thought the dude can fly. Who cares how high the guy can jump? He can get wherever he needs to be. Well, for the Ephesians, of course, they can jump over the tall building of loving one another and learning how to love one another. They have the spirit of God in them, and he is empowering them to live this way. And this knowledge that of the Ephesian church inspires Paul first to do something about them, and he gives thanks for them. He gives thanks to God for their faith and for their love. Can I challenge you on something? When's the last time you prayed a a prayer of thanksgiving for another believer, for what God has done in their life, how you see God working in their life, maybe even how they've, how God has used them to bless you in particular. Thanking God for one that is growing, that this one truly loves others. And if you started giving thanks for people, what do you think that's going to do of your perception of them? How will you begin to start to treat them, start to see them as a result of it? Paul begins by saying, I'm thankful for you guys. You came in faith and you're growing. And as a result, he's going to put out one request, only one, on behalf of this church. And after the request, he says, I'm praying this so that, telling three things that he hopes his request will actually accomplish in their lives. And the request is there in chapter one, verse 17. I pray the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He wants them to have insight and know something of God's mysteries as a result of the Holy Spirit's revelation to them. And God's work. But he doesn't just want them to have an academic knowledge. He doesn't just want them to have a mental ascent. He wants this to direct them into a knowledge of him. See, there's a lot of you. You can know about me. You can read my bio. You can say, tell other people things about me. You don't know me until you've spent time with me and talked with me and let me do the same thing with you. That's what God or what Paul prays for these people that the knowledge that they get is a deeper depth and revelation of God himself. In fact, first Corinthians chapter two says that the Holy Spirit searches out the deep things of God and reveals them to the believer. And that's the idea here. It's not just mental assent. Um, He's not interested in you being able to win the latest biblical trivial pursuit. You know, and you have the most facts and you have the most knowledge and you can say all the books of the Bible one way and you can say them all backwards. He doesn't care. But it's a knowledge that you have that moves you in a direction such that you can apply biblical wisdom to situations. You can now start making choices in your life, decisions in your life that are in line with the person and the character of God. That you know who he is and how he thinks and you know what he's doing. Um, back in uh, World War II, the D-Day invasion, one of the most brilliant things the Allied forces did was they took their second lieutenants, which is basically the lowest echelon of the officer corps, and they let them know the big picture of what it is that they were trying to accomplish. And it's a good thing too, because when the airplanes went in and people jumped out, there was so much chaos going on between the uh, anti-aircraft flak that was coming at them and airplanes moving and dodging, people landed all over the place where they weren't supposed to land. But here's what they had. They had a knowledge of what it was that they were supposed to be doing. And they could pick up where they were and move forward and advance and bring about a victory. Paul is reminding these people, God is giving you this knowledge. He's giving you such that he he can drop you anywhere in the world. And now you'll know where to go. You'll know how to live. Verses three through 14 reminded this church of the wealth that they had as a result of the blessings of God. And Paul says, now that you know about this wealth, let's this knowledge guide you as you advance. Make use of the possessions you have. Don't bury it in a hole. And he asked this specific prayer request, as verse 18 says, so that, here's the reason, they can possess three things. Something that has to do with their past, something that has to do with their future, and something that has to do with their present. And the first reason behind this request, you see in verse 18, it has to do with the past work of God. That the wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of God And being enlightened in these things might be so that they know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, what in the world is that? Well, first of all, let's remember, hope doesn't mean like this wishful thinking. That's how we generally tend to use it. I hope I get a new motorcycle for Christmas. Uh, No, that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. This hope is sure. It's fixed. It's fixed. You've placed your hope in something and assured that it's going to happen. And Paul's reminding these people, this isn't about wishful thinking. This is the certainty that God has called you. He has chosen you. He has elected you. He has adopted you. He has predestined you. And those are all past tense. And so because they are past tense, this prayer is that these Christians would remember what it is God has done already in calling you. And if he's done that, then why would he leave you now? Why would he abandon you now, no matter what it might be that you're going through? What can you possibly go through that he would not remain with you? Folks, if that prayer is answered, what's your perspective going to be in life? I'd like to suggest, first of all, there's going to be this incredible optimism that you will have, no matter what your circumstances are, because it's not based on your circumstances. It's based on a trust. Your trust in God and on top of that you're going to have patience that God is going to work out his plan in this circumstance whether you think it's going well or you think it's not going so well he will work it out in and through us you know when I went through uh, uh, military training after I completed jet training then they send you to prisoner of war camp school if you can call it that utter misery all right. And so you're going in there and they're doing a lot of stuff to you that you kind of go, hmm, this, this, this is not good. Um, I hope this doesn't mess me up mentally, physically, whatever. I didn't necessarily think fully that way. And I'll tell you why. Because I knew something. The government's invested over a million dollars in just me being able to fly these jets. They are not going to jeopardize that. They are going to make sure that I come out, not overly traumatized, not too many problems, but I will know how to deal with this situation in the future. So life might have been pretty miserable in the moment. Here's what I didn't do. I never worried. Never worried. God hasn't invested a million dollars in you. He's invested the blood of his only son to purchase you. That's what he has in you. And so he's going to stay with you. No matter what it is that you're going through, that is a certain fixed hope behind the calling that he has in you. And he's going to be deliberate to work in you as well as through you. And we're to pray this for one another. That that knowledge and wisdom with the truth will enable us to be steadfast and patient in faith, knowing what God has started, he is going to see to completion. The second so that here, Paul's work, um, his request of God's work in their life, what it would do with regard to the future of the Ephesians, has to do with the wisdom and the revelation, with the eyes of their hearts being enlightened, to know the glories of his inheritance. Now, this isn't talking about you're, what you're going to inherit from God. This is what's significant about this passage. The wording's kind of strange, but ultimately what he's highlighting here is you are God's inheritance. We're not talking about what you're going to inherit. We're talking about what God will inherit. And what God's going to inherit is you. I thought I'd hear a big amen. <laughs> now, there's a lot of you, and I have to confess, I'm be the same way. You know, if that's what God's holding out for on the inheritance, I'm afraid he's going to be a little disappointed on that great getting up morning, you know, when we get presented as that unto him. That's why Paul's praying for these people. The call is that you see yourself through God's lenses and not your mirror. God has purposed that he's going to see you through to the end. He's going to use you and exalt you in a type of glory. And that's the way we ought to see ourselves, that you will experience this. And it ain't going to be just you. Look around. It's going to be all these other people around you here as well. That's the glory that he can take all of us and make us his inheritance. And it will all be due to the marvelous testimony of the glory and the grace of God alone. That's it. And so when you live with this kind of knowledge, then you are going to live with something. A confidence. A confidence that you have been accepted. You are not going to live in the anxiety of, do I measure up? Am I good enough? No. It's a sure thing. Then God says, or Paul says, I'm praying for the wisdom and the revelation and the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to establish a present work with God on you as well. And that is so that you might know the surpassing greatness of his power to those who believe. The greatness of his power. Now, what kind of power are we talking about? Well, Paul tells us. That's how the rest of his prayer goes in verses 20 to 23. It goes, it's the same power that did the following. It's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that seated Jesus at the right hand of the Father, the same power that put him above all rulers and authorities and dominions, angels, demons, you name it. It's the same power that gave him a name higher than any other. It's the same power that put all things in subjection under his feet. And what an image that is. Y'all remember in um, Joshua in the Old Testament, when Joshua conquered those kings, remember what he did? He put his feet on their necks. It was a sign, you are in subjection. And this, that's, this kind of power that has put Jesus in that kind of position over the entirety of the world, that's the same power that has made him the head of the church and God in Christ and Christ in us, constantly filling us. That is the kind of power you have. That's intense. You ever seen those huge bulldozers? Everybody say, yeah, of course you have. And when you look at them, you can see, oh my goodness, there's an immense amount of power behind this thing. I mean, just look at how heavy they weigh. The fact that they could even move and establish a type of momentum would show us, man, this thing will crush anything in its path. You know it has to have an amazing degree of power. But it isn't until you actually sit in it and you turn the key And you hear that engine fire up, and then you raise that whatever that thing is on the front end, and you go over to a tree, and you knock it over. Now you begin to experience the immense power that this device has and it brings. That is what Paul is praying for. Not that you can describe a bulldozer, that you are in it. You live it, and you begin to see this happen and drive it. So here's a question. Do you pray this kind of prayer for yourself? Do you pray for these kind of things for others around you? One of the things I love about this is the point, you don't need to go around praying for more blessings from God. You've already got them. You don't need to pray for more power from God. It's all there for you. You don't need to pray for more revelation from God. You have everything you need in and through his word. You don't need to even pray for more of Christ. He is completely available to you. You don't need to pray for more grace. You've already got an infinite supply. And you don't need to pray for more of the spirit because you have been sealed and filled with him. The problem is never a lack of accessibility to the blessings. The problem is when we lack the insight and the wisdom To appropriate and use what we have what has been given to us in a proper and faithful manner and that is why Paul praised this prayer that the people would receive this that's what we want to pray for one another that you and I start getting in the bulldozers and avail ourselves of the power that's available to us too and if we begin to do so you know what the consequence will be be we'll start to live fearlessly we won't be afraid This Warren Wearsby tells this great story about William Randolph Hearst. Apparently Hearst saw something and read something in a paper about it, this incredibly valuable work of art. And he went to his agent and he says, you see this? I want you to go out, I want you to find it, I want you to buy it. No price is too big. Go out there and get it for me. His agent saluted, said, aye, aye, captain. Went off to go find that thing. Went out actually for a few months, eventually came back. And he says, great news, I found the work. And Hurst says, awesome, how much did it cost? And he said, even better news, didn't cost me a penny. He said, why didn't it cost you any money? He says, because you already had it in one of your warehouses. It's been sitting there for months. Hurst didn't need this big quest to go out to find what was already his. And you don't need to go out and to find more in the Christian life on these things because you've already got them. They are here. And that is why Paul prays this. He says, let's turn on the light in your warehouse so that you can look around and you can start to see what it is that's in here and what you already possess. And this will enable you to endure patiently and optimistically, knowing that he who began a good work in you is going to see it done. That you can endure confidently because you know that God will one day claim the entirety of his inheritance and that's you and that you can live fearlessly because the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power God grants to you to live out his will for his glory. Ladies and gentlemen, the light's been shined inside of you. It has now live out what you have and what you are. So that's my challenge to you for this week. When you're having devotions this week, or you're driving in the car, well, if you're driving in the car, it's going to be different. You're going to put this on audio or something. But if you're sitting at a desk, take out your Bible, pull out Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to look over verses 3 through 14. Start praying about those things. Pray them for yourself, that you will have the wisdom and the insight of what God's given you. Then pray them for somebody that's in your family. And then pray them for somebody in this church. Maybe later on in the week, let them know some of the things that you're praying for. And if we pray this, folks, you need to be ready. Because I look forward expectantly to see what God is going to do through Blue Ridge Bible Church in the year 2024.